We're going to finish um, Matthew 12 tonight and then when we resume Matthew, we'll pick it up at chapter 13. So, Matthew chapter 12. The other thing that I neglected to tell you was that are you aware that because of the change to the COVID rules, when you are inside and seated, you don't have to wear a mask? So, if you're seated, you can take your mask off. Aware of that? Cool. But if you stand up, you've got to put it back on again, of course. So Matthew chapter 12, <clears throat> Jesus and Beelzebul and the sign of Jonah. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished, and they said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive, out, drive them out? So then they will be your judges but if it is by the spirit of god that i drive out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you or again how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then he can plunder his house whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters and so i tell you every kind of sin and slander uh, can be forgiven but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, neither in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit, an evil spirit, comes out of a person, it goes through uh, arid places seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. 
This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, through this diverse passage, I pray that you might show us the truth as it is found in Jesus. And Lord, having discovered truth, for us to respond to it appropriately. So speak to us, teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Most people want to dismiss the existence of God or of Satan or of the spiritual realm. Some people will put it into the area of it's just figurative language or, uh, or it's mythological, um, it's a fairy tale, something that Hollywood has created or made up, whatever. But there is an increasing number of people also in our society who are increasingly open to what they call spirituality, not necessarily believing in God or uh, Satan or angels or whatever, uh, but more new age, extrasensory perception or ghosts or witchcraft or something like that. But the Bible clearly reveals for us that there is a natural created order, the world, the universe, that we are used to, that we can see, feel, hear, touch and so on with our senses. But the Bible also reveals that there is a supernatural realm, a supernatural world. It's one which is behind the scenes. We can't see it. We don't have the senses or the ability to do so. Though occasionally they do manifest themselves in this world. Angels can appear and they appear human and so can demons for that matter. Uh, They can appear. Um, and there are some remarkable stories in the Bible of it. One of the ones that I like, I think it's back in 2 Kings chapter 6, back there somewhere, early Kings anyway, (coughs) where um, Elijah, I think it is, Elijah the prophet, is uh, um, protecting God's people and this king from Aram is trying to invade and every time he goes to invade, Elijah prophetically understands where he's going to be and so he warns the king of Israel and so... The king of Ram gets annoyed and frustrated. So he says, find out what's going on. So he sends in some spies and he finds out it's Elijah. So he says, right. So he sends in a hit squad. He sends about, you know, several hundred men to, with chariots and horses and foot soldiers. And they surround the place, the house where Elijah is staying. And Elijah's servant wakes up early in the morning to uh, go out and do things to get ready for the, the day, I guess, and get ready for breakfast. And when he goes out, he sees the chariots and the soldiers that the king of Aram has sent. Panics, goes running back inside <clears throat> and says to Elijah, you know, we're being invaded, what are we going to do? Uh, to which Elijah says to him, don't panic. Those who, are, who are, those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And then Elijah prays and he says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he can see. And God does. Heard the prayer of Elijah, he opens his eyes and around and behind the soldiers that the king of Ram had there stood, you know, thousands and thousands of angels in fiery chariots behind them. It's like God had parted the curtains into the spiritual realm to see what was going on. The Bible talks about this realm. And this passage tonight taps into it. Yep, Satan is real. He has a kingdom. And his kingdom is hierarchical and structured in some ways similar to God's kingdom. He's duplicated it or he's tried to copy it in some ways. And Satan's ambition is always to undermine God's kingdom, to steal, kill and destroy those who have been made in God's image. That's us. And he always seeks, it would appear, to inhabit those who are made in God's image. 
And like at the end of that reading, I, whereas if a spirit is taken out of a person, then it goes looking for a place and it doesn't find any place to rest and it returns to the house that it was living in, inside the person. And if the house is clean and swept and it's in order, but it's not filled, there is no master living in the house. They've just been set free from the demonic, but they haven't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Then that house is still vacant and that demon returns. And through the activities of the person, their sinful conduct, the demon is able to re-enter. And this passage, Jesus says, and takes with it seven other demons worse than itself. So there's a hierarchy of badness, if you like, in the kingdom of Satan. And so they enter him. The Bible talks about, in our English Bibles, demon possession. Uh, that's what it says at the beginning in verse 22. They brought to him a demon-possessed man. Demon-possessed. I changed it. I translated it as demonized. I think that's a much better way to translate it. Because demon-possessed sounds like you are completely owned by the demon. And demonization in the scriptures, when a person is under the control of the influence of the demonic, it's not always total control. So often it is partial control in some area. And so it's much better to speak of it as demonized because the question, the argument goes, and you may have had it or heard about it, if I am a Christian, can I be demon-possessed? Well, if possession means under the total control of the demon, then the answer is clearly no. But if you are a Christian, can you be demonized? The answer is yes. That even though you're a Christian, you can still have the influence of a demon in your life or attached to your life. There are various examples of that in scriptures. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, when you are, and we spoke about this Friday night at Youth Group, um, if, you are angry, if you are angry, then don't let that lead you into sin. And if you are angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with it as quickly as possible. Don't give the devil a foothold. There it is. Don't give the devil any point of attachment, any way that he can influence your life. And if you have a sinful habit, then that's what you are doing. You are opening yourself and exposing yourself to the attachment, potentially, of some sort of demonic influence. Um, maybe you want to talk more about that. I'll just keep moving on. About 63 times in the scriptures, in the Gospels, it talks about demons and the Lord Jesus freeing people from it. In this particular instance, they brought to him, Jesus a man and this demon had made him blind and mute, couldn't speak. So he couldn't see, he couldn't find his way to Jesus and he couldn't speak, he couldn't call out to Jesus to save him. He was in a desperately bad situation. The evil one had him really bound up and Jesus healed him let the demonic go. We're not told how, obviously by the command of the Lord Jesus, get out and go away. But by the end of this reading as well, that passage where the demon goes out and comes back, I, I have very limited experience, some, but very limited experience in dealing with this. And I have learnt that when a person is demonised, they have to be wanting, willing to repent. They're wanting to have the master come and live in them, the Lord Jesus. And if they're not willing to do that, it's more harmful to release the demon from them, Jesus warns us. So Jesus healed this man so that he could both talk and see, and the people are absolutely astonished. Who has this sort of power? Could this be the son of David? Is this the promised Messiah? Is he the one who's going to establish the kingdom 
of God. And of course then the Pharisees are going to respond to that. Are demons still here today? Yes. Uh, and as I've already said, can they influence us? Yes. I liken it like that. This is my analogy and I find this helpful because the Bible talks about Satan like a roaring lion going around searching for someone to destroy. So be warned. If you're on the path following Jesus, then there is some wobble room for you. Um, the evil one is outside that realm. He's not on this road. But it's a bit like he's over there on the side of the road and he's trying to either con you, seduce you, attract you and do all sorts of things to you. And if you move towards him, if you step over the line outside the kingdom road, if you sin, then you expose yourself to the influence, the harm, the attack, the oppression, if you like, of the evil one. So he can't touch you unless you foolishly move closer to him and step over the line. The ball's in your court. That seems to me to be the way that this operates. C.S. Lewis says there are two mistakes we can make about Satan. One is that we totally ignore him. The, third, the second one is that we become totally obsessed with him and we see him everywhere. If something is going wrong in your life, the door is locked and there's a demon in the doorknob. Whatever. But demons and Satan are not omnipresent. They can't be everywhere at the same time. They are localised. They can be in one place at one time satan included nor are they omniscient they don't know all things and it's a controversial or a discussed point can satan read your mind i my answer is no he can't because he can have a jolly good guess but he can't read it god can satan can't there is a belief that goes around it's been around now for millennia called the big lie and the idea of it is if you repeat a lie, a lie loudly enough and often enough people will begin to believe it fake news nero did it a couple of centuries a couple of millennia ago when he blamed the christians for burning rome say it loud enough often enough people start to believe it hitler did it by blaming the jews for the economic crisis that germany was in just before world war ii the big lie that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're telling a big lie. They're saying it often enough and loud enough and some people are starting to believe it. They said this before, what they say in verse 24. They're repeating themselves. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, not to Jesus, but to the people behind Jesus' back. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Beelzebul is really Beelzebub. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 1. Um, in 2 Kings chapter 1, it's Baal, Baal, if you've read, you've read the Old Testament, he's a false god. Baal means Lord or Master. And Zebul means um, the high place or the heavenly realms. So he is the, the Lord or the Master of the heavenly realms, Beelzebul, Satan, Prince of Demons. But in Kings, he's called Beelzebub, which is the Hebrew way of being a little bit cheeky and naughty, uh, that Zebub means flies or human excreta, dung. He's the Lord of the outhouse. He's the Lord of dung. Um, that's just the Hebrew sense of humour, I guess. But the, the Pharisees are saying, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the evil one himself, Beelzebub, Beelzebul. Um, the Lord and Master of the High Place. Jesus is just some sort of magician or sorcerer or whatever else. 
Jesus' response to that in verses 25 all the way down to 29 is to shatter that argument and then he will um, go on to encourage them to make a response which will be helpful for them. They're in spiritual danger and they're playing, with spirit, they're playing spiritual games with very serious consequences. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, we're not told how he knew their thoughts, perhaps the Holy Spirit revealed it to him, so Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, every kingdom divided against itself won't, will be ruined. Every city and house, if it's divided against itself, then of course it won't stand. Uh, Satan, in fact, if Satan is against Satan, if Satan is casting out his own soldiers from those that he's taken captive, he's going to undermine himself. That's a silly thing to say that I am casting out demons by the prince of demons. It's illogical. Jesus then goes on to say... And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, if that's how I do it, by whom do your people drive out demons, your sons? Now, whether Jesus is referring to the disciples, the apostles, who had been driving out demons, or whether, in fact, there were others, there's one biblical example of where some Jewish people were going around and they were seeking to cast out demons. I find it strange that a non-Christian could do that that they would have any spiritual authority to remove an evil one. So I'm not sure that it happened in reality, but rather that the demon pretended that it had gone. As I said before, are they still around today? Yes. Why don't we see them? Well, you do in some nations and places and sometimes even in our culture, but rarely. But they're still around because Satan has got a much better strategy. He's a deceiver and deceiving is far more effective. And his great con is for the world to believe that he doesn't exist, that he's just a myth, as C.S. Lewis said. Um, so Jesus says, uh, if, if you're going to be consistent, if I'm doing it by Beelzebul, then your people who are doing it, they must be doing it as well. You wouldn't say that. So you're being inconsistent. In Acts chapter 19, there's an example of a Jewish family. He's, the dad's name is Sceva. He has seven sons. And they'd heard preaching, they'd heard Paul make statements, and they'd heard Paul say something like, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of him. And it worked. So the seven sons of Sceva, they went to a particular house where a man was demonised and pretty violent with it. And they said, oh, we'll use the, the names that Paul is using. Because I, I would assume that they had been probably reasonably ineffective. Well, that worked, I'm going to try that. So in the name of Jesus, these unbelieving Jewish people, seven sons of Sceva, said, in the name of Jesus, come out. The demon spoke, said to them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? The demons will not respect uh, any spiritual authority outside of either the evil one himself, to whom they are brought into forceful submission, or the ultimate authority of God himself as the Lord Jesus. Jesus is Lord of all, all, and they are in sheer terror of him because he is all-powerful. And when he speaks, things happen. So Jesus says, you're inconsistent. Not only is it illogical argument, Satan's not fighting against Satan, it's inconsistent. You only say it about me, you don't say it about others. But he also says, it's inadequate. Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So it's inadequate. Three times Isaiah had predicted the Messiah would be filled with a spirit, anointed with a spirit, he would minister by the spirit, signs and wonders. 
And then Jesus gives an illustration. Or again, if somebody went into a strong man's house and wanted to rob him to carry off his possessions, you couldn't do it. If the strong man's in the house, first you've got to take care of the strong man. You've got to tie him up, you've got to limit him, you've got to stop him doing things and then you can plunder his house. This clearly implies that Jesus is implying that the evil one is strong and he is. He's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, but he is powerful, he is strong. Um, But he can be limited. You can limit demons. You can't, we can't limit Satan. God can, we can't. When Jesus came into our world, he started this process of binding the evil one, delivering people from the demoniacs, and that continues because the Lord Jesus has ascended and gone to heaven. It guarantees a future binding the next time Jesus comes back depending on how you read the Bible then Jesus will bind the evil one and it'll be a worldwide limitation he'll be locked up Revelation 20 thousand years and that just precedes the ultimate binding so it's in stages it's like um, a little a worldwide and then complete removal from the universe God is in the process of ultimately removing, uh, removing evil from this world and there'll be a, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells with no evil. At the moment, Satan is free with his demons to roam the earth, to walk around looking for victims. We can't bind Satan, but we can bind the strong man. If you hear people praying, Lord, I bind Satan, it's, the answer is no, God's not going to do that. But he will bind the strong man. He will bind demonic presences. Um, because Satan is still the accuser of the brethren going around. So to summarise all of that before I move on quickly, Jesus has said, Satan doesn't fight against himself. Um, and if I'm doing it, and it's not by Satan's power, then it must be by God's power, the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, if I'm using God's power, then the kingdom of God must have come upon you, must be near you, and it is in the person of Jesus. And if the kingdom of God has come near you because I have come, then that means I must be the king. That's Jesus' logic. That's its process of argument. The conclusion of the people in verse 25, is this the son of David, was correct. This is the son of David uh, who has come into our world. Now Jesus, having taught them, having corrected them, now seeks to appeal to them says in verse 30 whoever is not with me is against me you can't be neutral now from now on you guys jesus is saying you can't be neutral about jesus it's time to take sides if you're not with me you're against me if you're not me helping me gather in the harvest if you're not gathering with me you're opposing me you're scattering so it's time to make a decision you can't be neutral about jesus If he's the king, it's time to submit to his rule. If he's not the king, if you're indifferent to it or just you're ignoring it, if you're not submitting to him, then you're in the same category as those who oppose him and reject him. Of course, if you're a person who is just new, if you're a person who's just starting the process of investigating about Jesus, then of course this doesn't apply to you just yet. It may not be time for you to decide about Jesus. You might still need more information. And we do need time to learn to consider what the evidence is and what the facts are but you can't sit on the fence forever 
you have to come to a point eventually where you decide either to yield to the king or you choose to reject him and his rule over your life. It's certainly okay to ask questions and to find out more, please do. If you have questions, ask them. But don't use question asking as an excuse not to respond. If you're not with me, you're against me. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees who had a whole stack of information about who he was and so on. And then he goes on. Uh, your refusal to believe in me is very dangerous, Jesus says. Verses 31 and 32. And so I tell you, every kind of sin can be forgiven you. Every sin, that's wonderful news. Doesn't matter what sin you've committed, God can forgive you for it. Even blasphemy against the Lord Jesus and speaking things against him. But, says Jesus, the only exception to that is this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Speaking against the Holy Spirit. And again, people have understood this in different ways. My understanding of it is, this is a person, like the Pharisees, they have seen the evidence. They're aware of what Jesus said and what Jesus did. There is a conviction in their own heart about the reality of who he is. He's powerful, speaks the truth. Of course, that wasn't their perception. Their perception of, of him was that he was a lawbreaker, that he broke their Sabbath and all of their rules and regulations, that he was a troublemaker, and that they had to get rid of him. So their response was one of a hardening of the heart against him. And whenever the Spirit of God would be working in them to convict them, they would ultimately, thoughtfully, deliberately, self-consciously reject that. No, that's not the Holy Spirit. And in this passage, they even go so far as to say, he's working by the evil spirit. So they're calling the Holy Spirit evil. So this sin against the Holy Spirit is if you really believe, if you really think, if your perception is that Jesus was evil, there's no way that you're going to embrace him. You would reject him. That's the sin against the Holy Spirit that it's partly driven by your refusal to accept the evidence and respond to it. Jesus goes on to say, the problem is within us. Talks about the mouth speaking what the heart is full of. You drop the bucket of the mouth down into the well of the heart and it drag up what's in it. What comes out of our mouth reveals what's in here. We can put on a nice face, we can say nice things, we can do all of that. And we can also dress things up so that we cover, in fact, some pretty bad stuff in here. We can gossip about people and talk about them behind their back. We can say nasty things about people privately. We would never say it to their face, but it's in here. And Jesus is alluding to that truth that the real problem lies within. And he goes on to say um, that it's by your words, by the way you speak, which will reveal the solution, if you've got the solution. Jesus, in fact, calls them a bunch of slimy snakes in verse 34 and 35. We are, of course, saved by grace, but Jesus said you're going to be judged by your words. Your words? Yep. By your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned, because your words will reveal if you have a new heart, if you've been uh, forgiven, if you've been redeemed, if you had a change of heart. You've got a new heart, a cleansed heart. You've been born again. Your words will reveal that. Um, and so Jesus teaches, you'll be called to account for the things you've been saying. You'll answer for it. That's a serious, solemn warning to them and certainly to us. 
Then some of the Pharisees said to him, Sir, we would like to see a sign, please. We want you to perform for us. Hello. What's Jesus been doing for months and months and months? But they wouldn't do it. They're probably trying to set him up. Jesus tells them very directly and very straightly, you are a wicked and you are an adulterous generation. I'm not going to give you a sign. I've given you enough signs. The only sign I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign of the prophet Jonah. What is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, the sign of the prophet Jonah is Jonah himself. He's the sign. Jonah was a prophet. God said, go to Nineveh, and he went the opposite way, got swallowed by a fish, a large fish. You know the story. And then he was in the belly of that fish, Jesus says, for three days and for three nights. Did he die? Some people think he was miraculously preserved alive. I think he may have died. The way chapter 2 reads, he sank all the way down to the depths of the mountains. Maybe, maybe not, not sure. But either way, whether he died or whether he survived those three days and three nights, he is alive and he's in Nineveh. The very fact that Jonah is in Nineveh is a very clear sign that God is at work in Nineveh. God wants to do something because he kept this rebellious prophet alive. And commentators have imagined and quoted other stories of examples of this happening throughout history where the stomach acids of the fish would bleach your skin white it probably removed all of your hair so he turns up as this bald white guy saying in 40 days repent or in 40 days god's going to destroy the city of nineveh jonah himself is the sign the very fact that he is there and of course Jesus says, but there's someone greater than Jonah here, meaning himself. Well, if you look at the contrast, let me give you this just five or six points very quickly. Uh, Jonah went to a group of people. He went to his enemies whom he hated. He wanted them wiped out. That's why he ran the other way. Jesus came to a people that he loved. Jonah came and declared judgment. Jesus came and preached good news. Um, Jonah came only with words. He had a very simple message. Repent, 40 days from now, God's going to wipe you out. Jesus came and he preached not just with words, but he also performed deeds, miracles that verified the truth of his words. Jonah was a prophet. Jesus is prophet, priest and king. Jonah was a man. Jesus is God and man. Jonah went reluctantly. He was in fact hoping that he wouldn't repent and that they would not receive God's grace. Jesus is greater and the opposite of that. He came willing, willing to pay the price and willing to impart God's grace. And the surprising thing is, Nineveh repented. The spiritual leaders of Israel refused to repent and they rejected Jesus, someone greater than the prophet Jonah. Nineveh had such little that they believed and repented. Jesus has given so much to this generation and they have rejected it they didn't want it same then he says with the queen of the south and then he goes on to talk about the demons that leave it's only going to get worse people when an evil spirit goes out then it comes back and it's going to bring with it build my life looks like i'm singing um so what does all of that mean for us well, like I was saying before, you can't be neutral about the Lord Jesus. You need to take sides. Where do you stand with him? Your refusal to believe in him is dangerous. Spiritually very dangerous, eternally dangerous. 
The problem lies within each of us, our own sin nature that we need to repent of. And the reality is that the solution is a new heart. That's what we need. That's the emphasis, I think, of this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for Jesus, the one who is the greatest of all. Came himself into our world to teach us, to show us truth, but ultimately to save us. Lord, help us to get off the fence if we're sitting on it. Help us to be committed if we've slackened off. Help us to stand up for you and to be available for you to use us in whichever way is going to advance your kingdom purposes. We ask and pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.